Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves yes. have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves, champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney as we welcome you to what is an exciting time of year. We know the winter meetings. We're knocking on the door of those. The hot stove's been lit for a while, though not much seems to be cooking for the Braves as of yet. But that could change with one big move, one big signing, one big trade. We don't know what it's going to be, but we know it's going to show up at some point. We're going to talk a lot about that. And, of course, some Hall of Fame chances for uh, quite a few Braves uh, on this year's ballot. A couple of different ballots we'll get into. And some other Braves news and notes as we come your way here on From the Diamond. As always, want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure you're following me on Twitter, at Grant McCauley is where you can find me. Also on Instagram, and now you can like the page on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond there. And, of course, Corey McCartney. You can follow him on Twitter at Corey J. McCartney and follow our work over on Battery Power. So with all of those intros out of the way, all the other things that we're working on and all the many ways you can connect with the show, Corey, great to connect with you for another week of baseball talk. And man, we've had quite a few fun things going on. It's not just here, but over on Battery Power, special guest, really cool episode. Very excited about that. Yeah, we got to chat up Mark DeRosa, man. It was really great to, you know, just hearing his insights on the Braves, the hot stove stuff. And of course, he gets to coach Team USA in the World Baseball Classic, which I know he is thoroughly excited about. So some really cool stuff that everyone you really check out over there on our Battery Power YouTube channel. Yep, make sure you're subscribed if you're not already to Battery Power over on YouTube. Catch our full conversation with Mark DeRosa. It was an awful lot of fun, and I know he's looking forward to that WBC, but also you catch him on MLB Network on MLB Central talking about all the same kind of hot stove stuff we're talking about. And wouldn't you know, we've got some overlap as far as what kind of topics we're going to talk about with the Braves, because I don't think there's a bigger question for Atlanta than shortstop. And one of the big deals that we're waiting for, I think, is for somebody maybe to get the market moving a little bit. So whether it's Carlos Correa or Trey Turner or Xander Bogarts or Dansby Swanson, Corey, do you feel like if one of these guys signs, maybe it it not only kickstarts the shortstop market, but also maybe the free agent market in general? I definitely do. And then you think too, like everybody has that second plan, that third plan. Everybody's got that list of scenarios, but they need that first one, not only to move to set up what else they're going to do, but I think also to help set the market, right? To figure out, you know, if if Turner or Correa goes, and I think maybe we have a little bit firmer idea of what the rest of this class might be looking at uh, compensation wise. So I think it's, it's all tied to that top tier, but it's like, everyone's playing this game of chicken and just waiting for somebody to be the first one uh, to put pen to paper. Yeah. And you know, the agents are obviously out there trying to collect all of the different offers they can get from different clubs, trying to drum up interest perhaps in some others. And the winter meetings is typically a, a big spot for that because even if all the deals don't get done, Corey, from my experience in the winter meetings, it feels like whether the move happens there 
or the move happens not shortly thereafter, it feels like there's so many important talks that go on when the entire baseball world converges on one city like they will in San Diego next week. Yeah, it's the foundation for conversation, which is, I think, the best way to put it. Uh, To hear Alex Anthopoulos talk about just because something doesn't get done there doesn't mean that they haven't set the stage for what's to come. I, I always think about coming back from winter meetings and all of a sudden Matt Kemp gets traded and, you know, within a day or so. And then all of a sudden you're talking about this is the way that Ron Lacuna Jr. is going to end up getting onto the field for this upcoming season. And that's exactly what happened. So it's it, it's not always what gets done. It's what sets the stage for what's to come. Yeah, and that's just the winter meetings of 2017. I remember those very well because we're talking to brand-new Braves GM, Alex Antopoulos, at that point. Everybody knows what was going on in and around the Braves as far as that was concerned. And what was Alex going to do as he took the reins and sized up what kind of prospects he had? Because, spoiler alert, he had an awful lot of them, and many of them have become stars, and many of them are going to be around Atlanta for years and years to come. But the one thing that was pretty apparent from the get-go was he knew this Ronald Acuna Jr. kid was going to be special. We were going to see him in 2018 but you just had to figure out a way to get it done. And moving on from Matt Kemp was just one of the dominoes that had to fall. Now for the Braves, there's no bigger domino this year that needs to fall than the shortstop domino. Now, is that going to have Dansby Swanson's number on it? It's going to be the number seven domino, or is it going to be something else entirely? I do not know, but I do feel like to get some clarity on what's going to happen this winter and not to beat a dead horse, Corey, and and just keep going down this road, but this is where we are right now. It's the wait and see with Dansby Swanson, or at the very least, getting clarity on what the Braves' plan is at shortstop, regardless of whose name is in the lineup on opening day. So think about it from this end. I know we've talked before about this desire and the state of desire from from Terry McGurk and you know from Liberty Media to have a top five payroll. And, and obviously, if you sign Dansby Swanson for what the looking like the going rate is to sign Dansby Swanson and then you do anything else, you're obviously going to be in that situation where you're going to have a top five payroll. You're going to potentially think about the luxury tax and all that fun stuff. But if all they're really trying to do is to figure out how they're going to spend this offseason, they've got to figure out shortstop before they can then figure out if they're going to go spend that money somewhere else. It's like everything that has to happen with them is first and foremost about Dansby Swanson and whether he's going to be back because I think that sets the stage for everything that's to come with this team. And I think the longer it draws out, I mean, let's just say some of those big arms go off the market Mm -hmm. and you still haven't signed Dansby, but you wanted one of those big arms and now you can't get it because you waited too long. It's kind of feels a little bit like the situation that we saw play out last year with, with Freddie Freeman and not saying that the this means that the Braves are going to replace Swanson at the position, but just watching dominoes fall, waiting for you to make your first real move. I think that's where this thing kind of gets a little bit tricky. And I think this is something that Alex Anthopoulos has the right kind of game plan and mindset for and and seems to do every winter because you'll come in and you'll ask Alex very specific questions about, okay, well, what about this need or this need or this need or what's at the top of your list? Seems to be a question that people just lob out there just to see what's he going to say. And he's like, well, it's not really about making a number one priority and failing all else. It's the only thing that we're singularly focused on we got a lot of different things out in front of us on the table, and we're going to try to get to each one of them, but it may present at a different time. Now, this is a wholly different deal, I feel like, the past couple of off-seasons because we're talking about Dansby Swanson this year. We were talking about Freddie Freeman last year. We did see a move happen, and that move happened before Freddie Freeman signed anywhere. So you know that Alex can make a move and fill that position 
pretty quickly with the stroke of a pen, it does feel like. And I don't think that that was an easy decision for him. But uh, to your point, I don't think that Alex is going to sit out there, watch the entire market kind of go away, and not really have a multitude of different plans and variations for the different possibilities that could play out if this player signs here, that player signs there, or if this player from a whole other team gets traded somewhere else before you have a chance to go get them. Those sound like awfully familiar circumstances from where we were about a year ago. Yeah, I mean, you just have to think about it from Alex's standpoint. It's like, how long can he wait? Just like last time. And I know everything was was with Freeman was just ramped up and sped up because of the fact the that you, you were coming off of the lockout, lockout and all that fun stuff. But it, it's just a matter of like, how long can he wait before he watches someone else that he really wanted to fill a need? And I, I think it's interesting because I think the we're both kind of in the mind that you don't have to go out and do anything within the rotation. Now, could you bring mm -hmm. in, you know, DeGrom, Verlander, you know, Rodon, whoever among that group? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's going to be a point where there's going to be a rush. Like once one of those guys is gone, I think you expect the same rush that you're going to have with the shortstops when they all fly off the board, potentially one after another as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I think everyone's waiting for something to happen for everything else to happen. And that seems like it's just been a, so much, we got, I think a little bit last year, a little too excited about the rush of everything. And, mm -hmm. and now we're back to that slow trickle that baseball seemingly gives us every winter. Yeah. Cause you had that crazy rush right before the lockout where a lot yep. of players just wanted to go ahead, take their deals, get done, know where they're going to be playing the next year. Then we came off the lockout and there was another flurry of activity because you had what, basically three plus months where you couldn't do anything. And I will say this kind of circling back to what you mentioned about the comments from Liberty media, and the ownership side of getting into that top five payroll. And I do think that that's something they want to do because the conversations I had prior to even the most recent comments, the last couple of months, I got the distinct impression because it was flat out said, that's our goal. That's where we're trending. We know we're top 10. Where are we going to get? Well, the next logical place is the top five. Now, I will say this, Corey, as far as the timing, and, and let me just go ahead and put the disclaimer out there. It does not mean the Braves are going to grossly overpay for Dansby Swanson or any other player just to prove a point. But don't you think it'd be curious to be talking about the aspirations of being a top five payroll team and then perhaps not go make a big spending splashy move in the very first winter right after you said that? If for nothing else, there has to be a certain degree of optics that goes with, hey, you said you're going to spend. Did you guys go and spend or did things just not happen? I'll also say too, it's it's curious that the Braves. And I, I'm not saying that one's correlated to the other, but the Braves have their fan fest coming back in 2023. Yeah, they do that the week between the uh, NFL championship games and the Super Bowl. And could you imagine a scenario? And they didn't have to deal with this last time because this is the first time this had been back in a couple of years. Could you imagine them going into that not knowing whether or not Dansby Swanson's coming back? No, I, I just feel like that would be. I mean, you're, you're in the 11th hour then, right? And then you're going to have every player in Anthopolis and every, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're going to be there and talking to me. I mean, every, every question is going to be like, what do you think is going to happen at shortstop? Is Dan's become, I mean, it would be a, a PR disaster. I think if they were dealing with that come brace fest, it would be a PR headache. I'll say that because, you know, disaster is a relative term. And if they get their guy, regardless of when they have yeah. to sign him. And even if it's a last yeah. minute kind of thing, I think everybody will get past that pretty quickly. But let me point out that from a PR perspective, you don't have the kind of excitement of, let's say a mascot reveal at this year's fan fest. You had that in 2018. <laughs> oh man, I forgot so, about that. Yeah. you know, And, and wow. gosh, how things can change and how things can grow and evolve. And now the Braves have perhaps one of the most beloved mascots in sports, or if you ask a certain other fan base, maybe one of the most hated mascots in all the sports, but 
Atlanta's not in the market for a mascot this offseason. They are in the market for a shortstop, and we'll see what Alex Anthopoulos comes up with. And if that name, at the end of the day, it's the same name we've come to expect for the last six, seven years, and that, of course, is the name of Dansby Swanson. Now, other Braves news happening this week. We have a pair of former Braves on that Contemporary Era Committee ballot for the Hall of Fame in Dale Murphy and Fred McGriff. Now, we talked about this some on last week's show, and that panel that's going to be voting on McGriff and Murph and six other players and some very interesting ballot I'll get to in a moment. It's going to include a couple of former Braves. Now, 16 panelists uh, from different backgrounds, current Hall of Famers, executives, historians, etc. But Chipper Jones and Greg Maddox are on this panel. There are the 16, as I mentioned. It takes 12 votes or 75% to gain election from that committee. But, uh, Corey, it can't hurt to have a couple of Braves grades to lobby for both McGriff, who each Maddox and Jones played with, and, of course, Dale Murphy, who Braves fans and other Braves greats have come to know and respect over the years. And I would think, too, if you're one of the PED guys, this has to be, you know, I mean, to have the guys that you were literally doing this against, and, you know, I think that's a major factor here, too. But obviously, yeah. it, it, it plays to McGriff and Murphy's benefit that you've got Chipper Jones and Greg Maddox out there, but also Jack Morris and Ryan Sandberg, Lee Smith, Frank Thomas, Alan Trammell. These are their contemporaries. These are guys that really understood what these guys meant to the game. And I think it, it you still have to get 12 votes of the uh, the 16 panel and each is allowed to vote for a maximum of three people yeah so that's kind of the caveat there but you know to have that group of to be the ones that are going to be you know dissecting the careers of mcgriff and murphy i think it it plays well i think excuse me i think it really plays well for mcgriff because he had this you know he had i think when you look at all those guys he had the longest time period together with all of them yeah I think it's interesting as you look at some of the crossover too with the ballot because Dale Murphy was on the ballot when both Alan Trammell and Jack Morris were elected in 2017. Oh, yeah. The Braves had a, a pretty good representation on that panel as well with multiple different guys, including Bobby Cox and John Sherholtz on that panel. I believe Don Sutton was on it, and Murph mm-hmm. was unable to get to the threshold, obviously, to gain election. In fact, I don't believe he got 50% of the way there. And again, you have the math that works against you. You can only vote for up to three players on that panel. I will point out that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to vote for the maximum of three. They might just kind of look at the one or two, really focus in on that and make some kind of a panel decision. I don't know if it's going to look like 16 angry men and or women to figure this thing out, but you are going to have to get 75% just as you do from the baseball writers ballot. But you hit on something that I really wanted to go a little bit deeper on, and that's the fascinating cast of characters on this ballot because you do have very different candidacies for the eight players involved. And it does feel like Fred McGriff and Dale Murphy are almost kind of pitted against some of the biggest names that are attached to the PED scandals of the past 25 years, none bigger than Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. And you've also got the Kurt Schilling conundrum that a lot of voters were grappling with over the past five or six years. So do we finally, Corey, see a case where that character clause could be the X factor for a pair of players, perhaps, to gain election to the Hall of Fame? Because we know it's certainly been cited as a reason not to vote for guys for the Hall of Fame. So you can make the case that Chipper Jones, Greg Maddox, they saw the best of Bonds, right? They saw Bonds at his height before anything happened because they dealt with him when he was in Pittsburgh for all those years. I mean, the same thing with Ryan Sandberg, you know, playing against him within the division there for so long and Lee Smith. And what does that what does that mean in terms of uh, in in contrast to, you know, what they ended up painting the picture of later on for, you know, everything that was wrong about baseball for an era. So, I, I, I mean, it's fascinating, right? I mean, but there's so many of those guys in there when you think about 
people who did it clean and didn't during that era. These are all amongst those guys. And I, I, I have a hard time believing it at the end of the day that they don't hold some kind of grudge for those guys, for what steps they took in their career. And I, I think that ultimately is going to weigh against them. Yeah, and considering, again, as I mentioned, with you know, guys like uh, Trammell and Morris in particular, Lee Smith's another one, some of these guys that are in here were not first ballot Hall of Famers on this panel, yeah. like a Chipper Jones or a Greg Maddox, and they know what it kind of takes to have to grind your way through, I guess, if you want to call it that, with your candidacy taking a very long time. And, I mean, at the end of the day, it has to be an important honor for a lot of players. I don't know that it necessarily validates or changes everything about what you've accomplished, but, man, if you got the opportunity to go to the Hall of Fame and anything for your chosen profession, most folks are going to feel like that's something that they would like to have, even if they didn't spend their whole career thinking about that as the ultimate end goal. And we're going to find out if perhaps this new and revamped committee, because it's been a thing that Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame in particular have done over the past few years, is to change the way the Veterans Committee works and have the opportunity to give another look at some of the players that might have fallen through the cracks for the writers have an opportunity to get in, and I think that Dale Murphy certainly uh, checks a lot of boxes as a Hall of Fame candidate. I think Fred McGriff does as well, but so do the other six players on this ballot. Don Mattingly's on here. Then you've got some other guys that we mentioned. There's some uh, questions about them from PEDs. I mean, it's not just Bonds and Clemens. you got Rafael Palmero on this vote. Then you've got a couple of very interesting, very surly characters, I guess, and Kurt Schilling and Albert Bell. So it's kind of an interesting group that's all been lumped together there. And we'll see if any of these eight men are going to gain election to the Hall of Fame. And we'll be finding out on Sunday, December 4th, as those results are announced as the baseball winter meetings kick off in full out in San Diego. Now, it's not just the Hall of Fame contemporary committee ballot that we're going to be looking at if we're Braves fans. It's also several Braves on the writer's ballot this year. And we know that will not be announced until after the new year. It's headlined, of course, by Andrew Jones, this group of Braves, but you've also got Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, and R.A. Dickey, who spent his final year of his career in Atlanta. All of those men are up for consideration. Andrew has been trending in the right direction, Corey, for several years. He came in at 41.4% of the vote last year, which was his fifth on the ballot. Wagner at 51.4% in his seventh year. Sheffield checking in at 40.6% for the second straight year. He only has two years of eligibility left, though, before his case would be in the hands of these special election committees like the contemporary era that we just talked about. I don't necessarily expect any of these guys to jump over the 75% threshold this year alone, though I would expect some big gains for all of these men. But it would basically require all of them just double their voting totals from the previous year. And with the writers no longer having to wade through the Bonses and Clemens and Kurt Schillings and all the debate that comes with it, I do know one thing. The path seems to be clear for a lot of candidates, not just these Braves, but a lot of players on this ballot, to maybe get some attention to their cases for the Hall of Fame, as opposed to all of the debates and controversy about certain guys and certain things they did or did not do. I just can't see any of the guys who are debuting in 2023 really making any kind of a push. I mean, I think a lot of these names are going to end up just falling off the ballot completely. So you've got Bronson Arroyo, Carlos Beltran, Matt Kane, Ari Dickey, Jacoby Ellsbury, Andre Ethier, JJ Hardy, John Lackey, Mike Napoli, Johnny Peralta, Francisco Rodriguez, Houston Street, Jared Weaver, and Jason Wirth. Beltran's probably going to get the highest percentage of vote out of those yeah. guys, right? You'd agree with that? Yeah, I'd agree I mean, with that. But I will say from a the Billy Wagner wing of all this voting, maybe K-Rod ends up getting a little bit of a candidacy that rises year over uh, year. Because he, if you check him up against some of the other closers, and in particular against Wagner, he does at least have a case. But I will say because of that, it makes me think. So the Hall of Fame trajectory of Tim Raines, think about how – 
you know, it wasn't going well for him. And then there was this late push. And then all of a sudden we kind of were starting to understand a little bit more, you know, the, what he brought to the table. I kind of see that happening with Andrew Jones, the more that we're standing back and being mm-hmm. like, look, if you voted for Omar Vizquel, if you ever voted for Ozzy Smith, why in the world are you not voting, voting for Andrew Jones? I think the defensive side of it, even though a lot of the metrics that we have now that are at our disposal weren't available then, I mean, you have to be blind to not understand that the, the you know what he was able to do with the glove for you know so long and playing yeah. center field in Atlanta. I, I think there's just a growing sentiment with Andrew Jones. I, I think I don't know that he's going to get there this year, but I don't think Andrew Jones is going to the Veterans Committee. Billy Wagner might end up there. I don't think that's happening to Andrew Jones. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because he does have. I mean, he's halfway through his ten years, I guess, at this point, so he's kind of on yep. the back nine. But with the considerable gains that he made from year one to what year five here this past year, he's just on the right track. And I think you bring up a really interesting point in Tim Raines, and I feel like he's kind of a, a central figure for maybe people starting to recognize, and particularly the crowded ballot didn't do a lot of guys a lot of favors, yeah. but there can be gains over time. And it's not just simply, well, if you vote for a guy once or don't vote for a guy once, you can never vote for him again, or you vote for him every single time. I mean, there's a lot of convoluted factors that go into the baseball writers hall of fame ballot, including the limit of 10, which was a huge problem, I think, and a huge deterrent for a lot of guys over the past 10, 15 years in particular, but putting all that aside and not really getting off into the weeds too much about some of the other candidates on this particular ballot, I do think that there's a really good case for Andrew to make some serious ground up this year. Sheffield, he has that connection with the PEDs, so will that be something that continues to hold him back and push him into a committee voting situation like a Bonds or Clemens or whoever else? Quite possibly. We'll see how it works out. But I, I think Billy Wagner may have enough steam over the next couple of years to push himself into the Hall of Fame. And I felt like maybe we need to reevaluate you know, what we do with relief pitchers because Hall of Famers have all kinds of different contributions, different careers, different milestones, and different accomplishments. And call me a big Hall guy if you want to, but I just think there are so many guys on the outside looking in that wouldn't push baseball over the best quote-unquote 1% in Cooperstown that would make the Hall of Fame a better and more well-represented place, particularly for the last six, seven decades, which has been a whole nother thing. The early history of the game, very well represented. The last 60, 70 years, plenty of great Hall of Famers in there, but not necessarily represented in the same way. Now, putting all of that aside, I do want to sum up our Hall of Fame discussion in this. While some of these guys on the baseball writer's ballot may not get in this year, how are you feeling on the chances of McGriff and Murphy on this ballot. We've kind of laid out the guys that they're up against, and we've talked about what it takes to get in. I feel like Fred McGriff may have the strongest case of anybody on the ballot because of the factors we mentioned with the slugging exploits that he had, 493 career home runs, being a steady great player for the better part of two decades, and of course having a huge contention of guys that he played with or against over the course of his career on this panel I think the stars are kind of aligning for Fred McGriff, and I've got my fingers crossed for Dale Murphy, and I'm, I'm hoping that this might finally be the year he gets recognized too. I will say on McGriff, so think about that, 493. He had the strike starts. He ends up you know, losing games uh, across this, you know, two seasons. The guys that lived through that with him are the ones that are deciding his Hall of Fame fate. Yeah. They know he would have gotten those seven home runs. I think McGriff is an absolute lock. Uh, amongst these guys and i i really do with murph i i'm with you i think fingers crossed because we know how much it would mean to him uh, we know how much it would mean to so many uh braves fans that watched him you know and defined a generation 
there's a lot of guys there that he impacted along the way too. And, and obviously when you start stacking character against those other guys in the ballot, I think that certainly bodes in uh, Murphy's favor as well. It certainly does. And as you look at McGriff, 66 games were what were cost for him, for the Braves and the 94, 95 seasons combined. I think in 66 games as McGriff was in the prime of his career, he's going to hit seven more home runs and keep a couple of other things in mind about McGriff's 493 home runs. He's tied with Lou Gehrig. That's a pretty good name, 29th all-time on the list. He would break the tie with Gehrig if he were to pull a Mr. 3000 and come out of retirement and somehow hit seven more home runs. But even if he hit seven homers to get to 500 and they've got that nice round number, he wouldn't pass anybody on the all-time list. So Hmm. it's just one of the little things I look at. And by the way, he had a whole bunch of postseason home runs. So if you really want to hold his feet to the fire about did he have 500 home runs, yes, he had 500 home runs in the big leagues if you include the postseason, which – For some reason, we still have to argue about the semantics of all of that. But I digress. Uh, Same thing for Dale Murphy. I did the math on this. I tweeted this out. 55 games off the 1981 schedule. I think with 55 ballgames, Dale Murphy has a chance to hit two home runs, get himself over 400. And the optics of it would simply be that, hey, he reached that nice round number well before we were talking about PEDs and all of the things that came into the late 90s and the early part of this millennium. So just a couple of things that I thought were of interest for these two guys and with their reputations and their exploits and what they accomplished on the field, I think would be two great additions to the Hall of Fame for the Braves wing, which has been growing and growing over the past few years. And it'll be cool to see a couple of more names jump in there. Uh, Meanwhile, down in Venezuela this week, Ronald Acuna Jr. was very busy. He has been cleared to play up to 10 games as a DH in his home country. A little bit of winter ball for him. But Acuna also put on a power display, winning a home run derby on Monday night. I'm really hoping, Corey, that, and we talked about this all season long, but getting a few weeks off this past few weeks since the postseason has ended, maybe getting this little bit of winter ball in there, keep the you know competitive juices flowing, a little bit of fun for a normal winter that he doesn't spend rehabbing. We'll see Ronald Acuna Jr. come back in the spring, ready to get back to doing the things we were accustomed to seeing before the knee injury slowed him down. It was nice too not to see Tomas Perez not throwing cutters uh, this summer. Yeah, <laughs> not, not pitching to Acuna during this home run derby. And I love the reaction too uh, when he wins it. I mean, he was just locked in. Um, I like the blonde and the hair too. Yeah. He had the he had the whole th- the whole thing going and uh, down there in Venezuela. But yeah, he looked fantastic. The swing looked as smooth as ever. So um, yeah, you we we talked about last home run derby whether or not that was going to be what got him started in his you know, come back from the knee injury. Uh, let's hope that this is really what jump starts. He looks like he's having an absolute ball down there playing right now. Yeah. And clearly, you know, health is a number one thing, but for any player who has competed as hard and worked as hard as I know Ronald Acuna Jr. did in his rehab to get back, 2022 was not the kind of numbers, the kind of season that he was expecting to have, nor was it what anybody, I think, affiliated with the Atlanta Braves or just fans of baseball were looking for from a power perspective, from an on-base perspective, from a lot of different things that he had to kind of deal with as he managed the pain in his knee, dealt with some other aches and pains. But for the most part, once he did come back, at least he was able to stay on the field on a pretty regular basis. The Braves tried to manage him through that early on. He did have the back issue a little bit later in the season, but he didn't have multiple injured list stints. They didn't have to shut him down for a month. I think those can kind of be seen as a net positive going forward overall because he has hopefully cleared those hurdles, and we saw his great speed on occasion throughout the course of the season. It's still something there, which means he's still a five-tool player, which means at age 25 he still has a chance 
to remain one of the top five or ten players in all of Major League Baseball. And that's what I'm kind of expecting to see in 2023 and beyond. Now, William Contreras, the Braves catcher, was also in this home run derby. And Acuna ended Wild Bill's two-year run as the reigning champion of that event. Regardless of that, Contreras is really coming into his own. We saw it here this past season, and he's going to be a big key, I think, Corey, to the brave success in 2023 because with that bat, you got to find a place to keep him in the lineup, and it's not just going to be splitting duty and splitting at bats behind the plate with Travis Darno. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about how do you fix the DH slash left field situation. We know, you know, there was some desire for Contreras to see time in the outfield. It just, you know, never really came to fruition. He just provides so much offensively. I think you've got to find a way to utilize that power and utilize that bat. And, you know, watching the highlights of him from that derby, too. I mean, they both, I mean, him and Acuna both just look fantastic. And I I know it's a home run derby. Uh, but man, it just it, it gets you excited about the potential uh, for what these guys are going to be doing uh, in the 2023 season. It really does. And a couple of things on Contreras. You know, Travis Darno told me probably midway through the season. I was asking him about you know obviously him getting back, being healthy full time this year, but also hey, you're teaming up with William Contreras. You guys are putting up big numbers. You're, everything seems to be going well behind the plate with the pitching staff. What if you notice it's different for William in 2022? And yeah, he gave him all of the necessary praise that he deserved. We're working hard, improving his approach at the plate, behind the plate, you know, handling the staff. The preparation is all on point. But the one thing that Travis said that I thought was really interesting is pretty much exactly what you said. You talk about being locked in. He said that the kind of power that William Contreras has, the only other guy that he would size him up with hitting baseballs into parts of the stadium where they don't normally go was Ronald Acuna Jr. So I thought that was pretty <laughs> fantastic to just kind of have that parallel out there and, you know, we'll see if more at-bats might allow William Contreras to continue to have his little own little impromptu home run derby for the Braves throughout the course of the season, whether he plays left field or not. I don't know that that's going to happen. I know that the focus on him being a catcher is the priority, but if you could figure out a way to get him some at-bats at DH, I think the Braves would benefit from that greatly as well. A couple of other Braves news and notes from this week. Our old friend Julio Tehran found a new home as he's aiming to make it back to the big leagues after spending a year Outside of that, Tehran signed a one-year deal with the Padres, could pay him up to $6 million if he makes the San Diego rotation. And Julio's only 31 years old. It seems like he's been <laughs> pitching forever. We've been talking about him for longer than that because he was a great prospect for all those years. But he pitched in the majors for Detroit in 2021, making one start before a shoulder injury shut him down. Uh, he was in independent ball last year, the Mexican League. He's playing some winter ball, and all of that prompted the Padres to give him a one-year deal and, and perhaps give Julio a chance to get his career back on track. I always liked Julio. I felt like you know maybe the expectation of him as a top-pitching prospect, it didn't play out in perpetuity in his uh, complete time with the Braves, but you know he did a lot more right than he did wrong, I feel like, in Atlanta. It'd be great to see him get himself back on track after a couple of years of kind of wandering in the wilderness and dealing with injuries. I, I, so I say this two different ways. I can't believe he's 31 years old, meaning that I still can't believe that he's only 31. And then remembering that he debuted at 20, I can't believe that he's 31 years old now that we're talking. You know, yeah. It's been that long since he debuted. But think about during, you know, what was it, seven years in Atlanta from 13 to 19, he averaged 191 innings over that time period. The dude was an absolute workhorse during a time where things were not going well for this franchise. Um, you know, he came out there, you know, it was out there available every fifth game. I remember yeah. Freddie Freeman telling me that there was a time period where it felt like the only two sure things in that clubhouse were him and Julio Tehran. And he came in one time when he was hurt, uh, you know, when 
uh, you know, uh, what was the issue? I think it was uh, with the wrist at that point with Freeman. Anyway, he came in and went over to Tehran and was like, hey, you know, you're going to have to pitch a shutout and get a home, hit a home run if we're going to win this game today. I mean, that was a time period that Julio Tehran was uh, was coming out there and logging all those innings. So, you know, you hope this guy, you, I mean, he's he's been through a lot and certainly you, you know, pissed a lot of innings uh, at this point in his career, but you certainly hope that he has an opportunity to get things back on track here in San Diego. Yeah, he definitely did. And I know that the Braves have had a lot of questions in rotation the past couple of years, and I'm not sure that Julio Tehran, especially if he's injured, was going to answer any of those. But it does kind of go back and show you that, hey, every fifth day they did have this guy penciled in the rotation. Yep. Now, a lot of people might have had their eyes on him being a perennial number one starter, number two starter, whatever, front of the rotation guy. And he kind of ended up being more of a middle to back end of the rotation guy. But look, all those pitchers are valuable. And the Braves have had their rotation tested for depth time and again over the past three seasons. So you know, hopefully for Julio Tehran, who gave the Braves a lot of important innings, I feel like, as Atlanta was going through its rebuild and getting back into contention in 2018 and beyond, we'll have a chance to get his career back on track as well. One other piece of news that came in on Tuesday afternoon is Jose Castro, the longtime assistant hitting coach under Kevin Seitzer for the Braves. He's been in that post since 2015, but Corey, he's going to be heading out to Chicago for the White Sox, so on the south side, to become the hitting coach up there. So a great opportunity for somebody who has worked extremely hard and helped a lot of Braves hitters over the past six, seven years. Yeah, I mean, I you know, that was what Matt Olson talked about too, you know, when he had made those changes to his swing late in the year was, you know, the influence there and obviously, you know, been around for a while and, and you know, learned from Seitzer. So um, certainly an opportunity for him to build on that and it'll be interesting to see how the Braves backfill that position. Congratulations to Jose. It's a great opportunity for him as his career is able to level up a little bit. And that's a really good Chicago White Sox team. You and I spent all summer talking about how can they not be yeah. better than they are. And there's a lot of reasons why in 2022, but I can't imagine they're going to underperform year over year. And with the kind of talent that they have, I would imagine the White Sox with new leadership are going to be trending in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, obviously they go with Pedro Grifol as now as their their uh, manager. So you know, a new voice, obviously a young team that didn't live up to expectations last year. So um, obviously a, a voice that we know going in to be part of things now in Chicago. Yeah, should be very exciting. And we hope to be the voices that you know all winter long as we keep you up to date on all the Braves hot stove news and, of course, all the other stuff happening across Major League Baseball around the big leagues. As I like to say, we'll hit a lot of those stories. We'll be talking about the winter meetings, which could be some moving and shaking at the very least rumors should be flying and that's the kind of thing that we like as we sit down and record a show each and every week we're going to keep the great baseball content coming to you so make sure you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts you can also catch Corey and i weekly on battery power you can subscribe over on youtube and of course follow Corey's articles which come out each and every week he'll keep you up to date and posted on all the great braves news over the course of the winter as we just try to follow along and get ready for 2023. It's going to be here before you know it, Corey. So I'm hoping we've got a lot of fun Braves news and notes and transactions to talk about before the new year gets here. I'm just looking out the window waiting for either spring to break or something to happen. Well, we'll see if either of those two things happen, <laughs> but we appreciate you guys joining us and having us be part of your baseball podcast regimen. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Check me out from the diamond.com. You can also like the show on Facebook. Now just search for from the diamond there. Make sure you're following me on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J McCartney and we are out of time for this week. So as always, we appreciate you uh, following along here on from the diamond. We'll be back at you next week. And until then, so long, everyone. <laughs>